Bibles with me, if you would. Open them to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. In particular, I'd ask you to open up to Colossians chapter 2. And our focus this morning will be verse 11. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. Let me begin this morning with a reminder of some of the things that we've been learning and talking about uh, over the last few weeks. Um, They've been a little bit tough uh, because it's not language that you would typically use out in Walmart or at the Burger King. You don't hear people just walking around in normal conversation talking about Abrahamic covenant, new covenant, old covenant, circumcision. You know, these are not these are not words that we use every day. And, uh, and so I, I hope that you've been able to follow. These are words that the Bible uses, and they are given to us as important for us as Christians. And so I hope that you've been with us and able to follow what's being said. I just want to begin this morning with a reminder of four things that we've already seen. Four things that we've already seen. Number one, we've already seen that God made a covenant with Abraham. That God came into this man's life. Here was a man, he was a pagan, a moon worshiper, just a normal guy. God broke into his life and made a promise with Abraham. And this promise included four things. One, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation from you. An eternal nation. A nation that's going to last forever. Abraham, I'm going to give this nation a land to dwell in. A land that's going to last forever. Genesis 15 is where that's at. That this nation is going to be especially blessed by God. And this nation is going to be a blessing to others. So we have this this covenant that's been made with Abraham. Abraham, I have chosen to make from you a nation. And this nation is going to exist forever. And it's going to be my nation, my kingdom, my people. And I'm going to put them on a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, as we later hear it described. And I'm going to to give that land to this people, and it's going to last forever. And I am going to specially bless this people by putting myself among them. And I'm going to make them a blessing to the nations around them. Well, that was covenant, and that was number one. Number two, we've seen that those promises made to Abraham are coming true today in the new covenant. That is, because of Jesus Christ coming, dying, rising again, ascending to heaven, because of the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost, we have now entered into a new phase of history, a phase called the new covenant, in which all of these promises to Abraham are now coming true in the church. The church is the holy nation the kingdom, the children of Abraham by faith who will dwell forever. If we are Christians, we are a part of that nation, that kingdom promised to Abraham. Right now, we are being prepared for the day when Jesus will return, renew this earth, and He will give this renewed earth to His people to dwell on forever. That's the eternal land. 
that God promised Abraham. The land that promised to Abraham was never meant to just be a little strip of land in Palestine. That land flowing with milk and honey was just meant to be a picture of God giving to his people the whole renewed earth. We as the church are especially blessed by God, are we not? We as the church are a blessing to others through the gospel as we take the truth of God and Jesus Christ to the nations. It is in us, it is in us who are Christians, it is in the church, it is in the new covenant that God's promises to Abraham are reaching their full, final, ultimate fulfillment. Which I find kind of exciting, to be honest. Number three, We've seen that all of these glorious truths that I've just talked about that are coming true in this new covenant were foreshadowed in the old covenant. They were foreshadowed by pictures, by types in the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It sure seemed like that was going to be the fulfillment, like that was going to be the ultimate coming true of the promises God made to Abraham, but it wasn't. Rather, it was a temporal, earthly fulfillment that would not last. There was a nation, the physical nation of Israel. But in the Old Covenant, that nation failed to stay together. That nation failed to live in peace. That nation failed to trust in God as their king. They did not exist forever. There was a land. It was only a small strip of land. And even that could not be kept by Old Testament Israel. They were blessed. God Himself dwelt among them in His tabernacle later, in His temple. But even that was just a picture of what was coming in the New Covenant when God would stop dwelling in a tent or a building and instead would come and dwell in who? His people is the new temple to which the old temple always pointed. The blessing that Israel was to be as they worshiped their God and obeyed God paled in comparison to the blessing that we, the true Israel of God, the church can be as we grow in holiness and carry the gospel to the the nations and reconcile people to God through Jesus Christ. Everything that we are now experiencing in this time of the new covenant of the church was foreshadowed in pictures and types in the Old Testament. Which is why the Old Testament still has much to teach you, much to lead you to worship. Well, finally, the fourth thing that we've seen is that to be included in any of these covenants, you had to be circumcised. The Abrahamic covenant required circumcision. The old covenant, which was the temporal, earthly fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, required a temporal, earthly, physical circumcision to be a part of it. And the new covenant, which is the ultimate spiritual, uh, uh, to what it was all pointing, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, requires a circumcision as well. The circumcision of the heart. Christian, to have all the glorious promises that Christ purchased for us at the cross, we must be circumcised in heart. To be a part of the new covenant people, the people who are going to live with God forever on the new earth. 
The people who have God dwelling in us as His temple. The people who are blessed and are being a blessing to be a part of that covenant people. We must be circumcised in heart. Well, that's what we've talked about. So on this Palm Sunday, as we enter into Passion Week, as we think about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I thought it might do us good to look at a passage that teaches us a wonderful, glorious truth. Namely, that our spiritual circumcision, our being born again, only happens because of the death of Jesus Christ. That the cost of you and I being born again, made new, the lights coming on, the cost of us being brought to turn from our sins to God, the cost of our hearts being circumcised was the circumcision of Jesus at the cross when He was cut off for our sake. Look with me at Colossians 2, verse 11. Colossians 2, verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The truth that I want to put before us this morning that should lead us to worship and love Christ more is the truth that our circumcision only happens because of Christ's circumcision. Had He not died, we could not have died to our flesh, to our old way of living. This is what it means to be spiritually circumcised. It's what it means to be a Christian, to have died to your flesh. Let me open this up with three points from this verse. Number one, I want you to see that spiritual circumcision is the putting off of the flesh. Spiritual circumcision is the putting off of the flesh. Do you see that in verse 11? In Him also you were circumcised. He's talking to Christians. Do you know who you are? Do you know what's happened to you? Paul is telling you what happened to you. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Physical circumcision is cutting off flesh. Spiritual circumcision, Paul says, is the putting off of the flesh. And we're not talking about skin, are we? Did you become a Christian by taking your skin off? Of course not. It's not what Paul was talking about. What Paul was doing here is using skin, in a sense, as a metaphor. That's part of why Paul uses this language of putting off the body of the flesh. Just as we are physically covered in a body of skin... So spiritually, apart from Christ, you and I are covered in a mass of sin. Are we not? The Bible tells tells us it is pervasive in us. 
Sin touches all of who we are. It touches our thoughts. It touches our emotions. It touches our wills. It touches our attitudes. Our flesh is everything that we are before we come to Christ. Full of rebellion. Full of pride. Caring nothing for God's glory. And the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision that matters shows itself in that decisive moment when we repent, turn, choose to be no longer captive to sin, but rather to give ourselves to faith in Jesus. The circumcision of the heart is a gift of God's grace in which we suddenly hate our flesh, we declare our flesh, no, we declare ourselves dead to our flesh, and alive to trust God, follow God, and love God. The circumcision of the heart is being born again, given a new heart that turns from old self to God in faith. Now, am I just talking abstract, theological, la-la stuff to you, or can you say, yeah, that's what happened to me? Can you identify with what I'm saying? Have you gone from at one time being old self, dead to old self? I don't live that way anymore. I'm not the Justin I used to be. My heart belongs to another now. I am a new creation in Christ. Can you relate to that? Has that happened to you? Let me ask you a question. When God came to Abraham... And he made all those glorious promises to Abraham. And then he said, now Abraham, you must be circumcised. What circumcision did God require of Abraham first? Did God require that Abraham be spiritually circumcised first? Or that he be physically circumcised first? Now think about it. The first time that God appears to Abraham and he makes these promises to Abraham, he says absolutely nothing about being circumcised in the flesh. Rather, here's what he says. Go. Leave your country. Leave your kindred. Leave your father's house. Go to a land that I will show you. In other words, the very first thing, indeed the ultimate thing that God required of Abraham was that he be willing to put aside his own desires, his own will, his own unbelief, and trust God and do what he says. Turning from self to God, putting off his old self and looking to God in faith, this is what was required of Abraham. Abraham was circumcised in heart before he was ever circumcised in the flesh. And he was not the first. Adam and Eve, after the fall, right? God makes this promise about a seed to come, calls them to trust him with the sacrifice of an animal and clothing them with the animal's skin. And we have every reason to believe that Adam and Eve, after the fall, believed on God. Abel, Enoch, Noah. These were all circumcised men. Not in the flesh but in the heart. They put off trusting themselves and trusted God and the promises He had made to them. God's, listen carefully, church, God's true people throughout history 
have always been those who by grace have been made willing to put off the flesh and turn to God. The reason God temporarily instituted the rite of physical circumcision was to remind Abraham's physical children and those who would join them of the need to be circumcised in heart. If they would not trust God, they would be cut off. It served as a picture to teach that all people, regardless of race or heritage or ethnicity, are either in God's eternal covenant of grace or out of it, depending on one thing. Have they been circumcised? Have they put off the flesh and turned to God in faith? So, point number one that Paul is making in this verse very clear is that circumcision is putting off the flesh. Second, this only happens in Christ. This dying to who we once were and being made new to trust God and love God only happens in Christ. What are the first two words of verse 11? What are the first two words of verse 11? In Him. From Adam, the first man to ever be circumcised in heart, to the last person who will ever be saved before Jesus comes back, every one who is a member of God's people will have experienced circumcision in Christ. In the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel was typically rebellious and unfaithful, but there was always a remnant of heart-circumcised people. They maybe didn't know the name Jesus, but they knew that God had promised the seed of the woman who would save them if they trusted in Him. So there was always a remnant of physical Jews, physically circumcised people, who were circumcised in heart, who were looking towards the day when the Messiah would come. People who died to their flesh and trusted God. In the Old Testament, it was the message that God was going to send a Savior that awakened people to trust God and turn to Him from their sins. In our New Testament day, it's the message that the Savior has come and that He is ready and that He is able to save whosoever will believe that awakens people to die to their old ways of living, to die to their flesh and trust God. It has always been in Christ that people have been born again. Whether Old Testament days, whether New Testament days, it has always been in Christ that people have been circumcised in heart and gloriously saved. There has never been a different gospel message. From Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation, the gospel message is the seed of the woman is coming or the seed of the woman has come. The gospel message that through which God circumcises people's hearts has always been the same message. Salvation is of the Lord. And he will save those who trust Him. But how does this happen? How, does, how do people come to die to their flesh? That is, how do people come to to turn from unbelief, to turn from pride, to turn from rebellion and trust in God? How are people circumcised in heart? 
in him. Christ does the circumcising. He does it through his spirit. Jesus, sitting on the throne of God, has been given power by his Father to save whomever he will. And he saves people by sending his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And the Holy Spirit moves Christians to share the gospel in places like Rocky Mount and places like Rwanda. And as the Holy Spirit moves Christians to share the gospel, the Holy Spirit causes listeners to understand and perceive that gospel. And the Holy Spirit causes people, as they understand and perceive that gospel, to see for the first time the glory of God in the face of Christ so that they happily and eagerly throw aside their sin. They want nothing else to do with their old way of living. They want to live for God. They want to rest in this God. They want to follow this God. Because they see His glorious character in the cross of Christ. Christ circumcises our hearts by sending the Spirit of Christ into our hearts so that we see Christ with our spiritual eyes and turn to Him, love Him, rest in Him, and are saved. My point is, it's all about Christ. Christ does the circumcising. It's the Spirit of Christ who causes it to happen. And what does He do? How does He cause it to happen? By causing us to see Christ with our spiritual eyes. By causing us to rest in Christ. And guess who gets all the glory? Christ! It was the Father who planned all of this out of love for His Son. He planned to give them a people whereby Christ would do all of these glorious things and they would praise Him forever. Look with me quickly at Romans 2, the passage we're going to study in a couple of weeks and end our study of Romans 2 there. Look at Romans 2 with me, if you would. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. Excuse me. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Hear how controversial these verses are, how provocative these verses are. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You think there might be some Jews in the world that would have a problem with that verse? Verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. So Paul says what matters most, what makes you a true Jew, what makes you truly a child of God, what causes you to be a part of this new covenant is circumcision. But it's a circumcision of the heart and it's done by the Spirit. In other words, this is a circumcision you and I can't perform. Only the Spirit of God can. It's the same thing Jesus was teaching Nicodemus in John 3, isn't it? You must be born again by water and the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where He comes from or where He's going. The Holy Spirit must do the work. Well, finally, point number three from this verse, Colossians 2.11. I'm going to go back there. The third point I want to make from Colossians 2.11 is that spiritual circumcision, 
this glorious miracle that many of you in this room have experienced of being born again, it only happens because of the death of Christ. You and I have been wonderfully, miraculously circumcised in heart. We've put off the old person. And it only happened because of the gruesome, grotesque circumcision of Jesus at the cross. You see, here in Colossians 2.11, it seems to me that Paul is using this phrase, the circumcision of Christ. See that phrase at the end of verse 11? The circumcision of Christ? I believe he's using that to refer to the death of Christ. I believe he's using the word circumcision here to refer to the crucifixion. It's not always referring to. He is still talking about our spiritual circumcision, which Jesus performs. He is talking about the circumcision which belongs to him and the new covenant, not Moses and the old covenant. But I think the crucifixion is in view as well. I believe that here in verse 11, Paul is using graphic language. He's just talked about circumcision as putting off the body of the flesh. And you have to wonder, why did he use that language, the body of the flesh? I think he has the cross in view. I think he's picturing in his mind the, the flesh of Jesus being pulled off his back as the cat of nine tails anchored in Jesus' back and then ripped the flesh off of him. In other words, here is a physical circumcision, a bloody removal of the flesh at the cross. And of course, this physical circumcision of Jesus at the cross is only a picture of the great circumcision, the one to which all others pointed, the moment on the cross when Jesus Christ was cut off from the Father for us. The moment when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment to which every circumcision that had ever taken place for thousands of years pointed. The commentaries are a little strange on this particular verse. I'll tell you why I think that. Uh, in verse 12, look at verse 12, we read about burial. Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism. Everyone agrees that this burial in verse 12 has layers of meaning. That Paul is talking both about the physical burial of Christ, but then how also there is the spiritual burial we experience when we are saved and our, our flesh is counted dead and put away from us. And then there's the picture of that burial in baptism, Right? So he's using this word baptism, but he has three, or burial, but he has three layers of meaning. There's the burial of Christ, there's our spiritual burial, and there's the burial pictured in baptism. Later in verse 12, he talks about resurrection. See that? Second half of verse 12, in which you were also raised with him. Right? So there's definitely layers of meaning. There's Jesus' physical resurrection. And then there's our spiritual resurrection, our being brought out of deadness and sin and made alive to God. So there's a, there's a, a physical burial of Jesus and our corresponding spiritual burial. There's the physical resurrection and our corresponding spiritual resurrection. But for some reason in verse 11, we're told we have to choose. Some of the commentaries say 
He's using this word circumcision to talk about the physical death of Christ. Others say, no, no, no. He's talking about our spiritual death to our flesh. But folks, it seems to me that just like in verse 12, Paul wants those two ideas to be held together. That this using of this phrase, the circumcision of Christ, is referring both to our being made new and dying to our flesh, putting off our flesh, dying to the old man, and the spiritual circumcision of Christ when he was cut off at the cross. Let me show you why this is important. Brothers and sisters, you and I do not deserve to be circumcised in heart. This is an act of grace and mercy by our God. This is a great blessing that brings us into a thousand more blessings. Did you understand that? Yet how can God be so gracious and so merciful towards sinners like us and still be just? Our sins must be paid for. God must judge us. God must condemn us. His holiness demands it. His goodness demands it. His righteousness demands it. Indeed, His Godness demands it. If God does not treat our sins with the judgment they deserve, He ceases to be God. So how is it He can look at us in all of our rank sinfulness and instead of sending hell upon us, He sends us the greatest blessing we've ever received. Circumcision of heart, bringing us to Himself, our sins forgiven. How can God do that and be God? And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The death of Christ as our substitute wrath-bearer on the cross made it possible for God now to bless us with this great gift of being born again. God's justice. Christian, hear this and rejoice. God's justice has been satisfied concerning you. His holiness has been preserved. The cost of you and I being circumcised in a heart was the bloody circumcision of Jesus when He was murdered on Golgotha. As we often sing, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. Let me drive this home. Many of you in this room have had a miracle take place in your life. At some point, 
as you heard the gospel or were thinking about a gospel message you had heard that you had been learning about it, at some point in your life, thinking upon the message of the gospel, God reached in and changed your heart. You changed, didn't you? Your old self and the pleasures you used to seek no longer seemed all that good to you anymore. Suddenly you were looking to God and the things of God for your pleasure. Suddenly you cared about God. You enjoyed resting in His love. You enjoyed learning from Him. You enjoyed living for Him. You didn't get straightened out overnight. We're still being straightened out, aren't we? We're still being made fit for heaven. But you were made new. You were a different person than you were before. You were circumcised in heart. And that salvation moment in your life was purchased by the death of Jesus on the cross. Here is the cost of your new life. Here is the cost of you having faith and love for God. Here is the cost that Christ paid so that you could hate your sin and love God. Jesus Himself bore the hell you deserved, dear Christian, so that you could have this new life. So embrace it. Don't take it for granted. Commune with your God. Love God. Serve God. Because Christ died to make it possible for you. Died so it would happen. So, let's get practical. What is the use of all this teaching about our circumcision of heart being purchased by the circumcision of Christ, His death on the cross? What should you and I take home from this teaching? Let me give you some implications. Number one, this teaching explains why we are Baptists. I assume you're Baptist for a reason. Just as in the Old Covenant, the temporal, earthly fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant, one had to be physically circumcised to be in the Covenant. So also in the New Covenant, the spiritual ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. One must be spiritually circumcised to be in the covenant. I have a lot of love and respect for many Presbyterians, men like R.C. Sproul, Egan Duncan, Sinclair Ferguson, and many, many more who have profoundly affected me. But my understanding is that paedo-baptism, the baptism of infants, is an incorrect practice. That baptizing babies and declaring them a part of the covenant people of God is something these scriptures will not allow. It is God and God alone who brings people into His covenant. And He does so not by baptism, but by the circumcision of the heart. By causing them to die to their old self and believe. It is the circumcised of heart who are in the covenant. And so I think this doctrine of circumcision brings us to the truth of believers' baptism. Second, this teaching reminds us that nothing outward or physical makes us Christians. 
Throughout the New Testament, we see the apostles struggling with false teachers who told Christians that they were not really Christians until there was something outward or physical that made them so. Often, the teaching was you must be physically circumcised in order to be a real Christian. And the teaching of Paul is no. It is what has happened in your heart that either makes you a real Christian or not. It doesn't matter what t-shirts you wear. It doesn't matter what bumper stickers you put on your car or if you have a nice little, a little fish on there. It is a new heart that makes you a Christian. Third, this teaching reminds us that salvation is a gift of grace because we cannot save ourselves and we cannot give ourselves a new heart. If you don't believe me, try it. Try it right now. Try and give yourself a new heart. I'll watch. How are you, you going to do that? Where do you start? This is a circumcision we cannot perform. We have been brought into this covenant only because of the love of Jesus, who graciously gave himself for us and purchased our new heart at the cross. And then sitting on his throne alive and well, he now gives it to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is a gift of grace. Are you thankful? Number four, this teaching reminds us of the need for prayer. And evangelism and missions. If it is only God who can circumcise the heart, doesn't that show the importance of us being constant in prayer that God would do so to those that we are seeking to reach, both here in Rocky Mount and around the world? Whether it is those we are hoping to reach with the gospel in our workplace, in our families, or in people groups whom we are seeking to reach through the missionaries we support, should not all of our efforts be saturated in prayer? God delights to save people, but he has said he will do so in response to our prayers. So let us pray. Number five, this teaching, these are glorious things. I hope you're rejoicing. That, that number five, this teaching reminds us that no one is beyond God's grace. Because since it is God who circumcises the heart, can you name any person whose heart is off limits to God? Is there any person who is so corrupt and so vile that God cannot step in and change them? There is no one for whom we should give up praying. There is no one whose sin is greater than God's power to redeem and change. Thank God He can save the worst of sinners. He saved us, right? Number six, this teaching reminds us that Christ will build His church. It is Christ, the risen Christ, sitting on His throne, who is even now, through His Spirit, even on this Lord's day around the world, moving people to proclaim the gospel and moving people to hear and receive the gospel, changing their hearts, saving them, bringing in them into His covenant people. Christ is building His church today. He will continue building His church. No one can stop this from happening. No one can hold back the circumcising hand of Jesus. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's people. He will build His church, and when He is done, He will come back and get her. Those who remain on the earth. Finally, this teaching reminds us of what it means to really love. Because how has Christ loved us? By being willing to die to bring us to God. Here is love. Being willing to go to any length, even death, 
to bring people to God. Here is how we love each other. By going to great lengths to point each other to God. By sacrificing in whatever way necessary to help others look to Christ. This past week during our conference, some of you served in the nursery. Others of you helped with the sound. Several of you sacrificed so that others could be in this sanctuary hearing the glories of God preached. The Bible calls that love. You sacrificing that others might hear the glories of God and be brought to Him. Week after week, church members here serve in our nursery or clean this building or work in the churchyard to make these services people, make, to make these services possible so that people can hear the glories of God preached and by grace be brought to Him. Your sacrifice that that might happen is called love. Your offerings so that we can be here. That's love. Parents taking time with their children to talk about the things of God. That's how they mostly love their children. By both speaking about them with their mouths and then showing their love for them with their lives. Being willing to speak to a friend or co-worker even when it's hard, even when it's awkward, that they might hear your message and turn to God. That's loving them. Today, Christian missionaries are out risking life and limb to take the gospel to people who have never heard it so that these unreached peoples might come to know God. They are following the footsteps of Jesus. They are loving these people. Is this your definition of love? Or do you get your definition of love from Hallmark? Jesus died to bring us to God. That is the greatest act of love which ever took place and the standard by what we know love should look like in us. So friends, let us love one another and let us love all by seeking to do whatever we can to bring people to God. Let our lives be arrows pointing straight up to Him as we serve our Lord. Let's pray. Father, if there is any in this room who have never experienced that miracle of being made new, dying to self, circumcision of